Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to have you stand one more time. You need the exercise. Um, one more time. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to begin here at verse 1. And again, we're doing a, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us today, we go through uh, a book by book, verse by verse, and in Luke, we've been doing an in-depth study of Luke. So we've been kind of chewing on things that you might not normally chew on um, and really kind of grasping the fullness of it. That's why it's been taking us so long going through Luke. Somebody says, man, we're going to be Luke forever. Um, no, we're not going to be Luke forever. We went through, we've gone through a lot of books, um, almost the, well, we've done the whole Bible and we're, we've, you know, at some point we're making our way through again, but um, there's just something really special about when you really take time to dig in and see what God has to teach us. So we are here at the verse, first eight verses here of chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable, he being Jesus, to show them that all, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You may be seated. Obviously, as you look at the text here, you realize that one more time we find ourselves dealing with a subject that is often repeated as you go through the scripture, and that is the subject of prayer. But I'm really wanting this morning for you to see this in context of where we are in our study. Look at verse 1. He says, now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So Jesus here, again, is telling another parable. Remember, parables are really fictitious stories that are used to illustrate certain biblical truths that have to do with our relationship with God or our faith and, and all those other things. But usually when Jesus speaks parables, as you go through the scripture, the lesson or the moral of the story is typically highlighted after the, the, the parable is given. But here in Luke, and by the way, only... In Luke, are we given this particular parable? He lays out the intended purpose before the parable is given. And the purpose that he says here is to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart or to faint. That we should not, that we should always be in prayer actually so that we won't lose heart or we won't faint. And that word losing heart there. It means that when you get so overwhelmed or you get so discouraged that you feel like you just want to quit, that you feel like you just want to give up, you just want to give in. And maybe you get to that point where you say, well, what's the use, man? This is just such a drag. I'm done. I'm just finished. I don't think I can go one more step. Do you guys ever feel that way? 
I'm going to be honest, I do frequently. There are some times when the pressures of this life honestly get so overwhelming that I do start to faint, and I do get weary, and I do find myself feeling tired, feel myself, you know, just dealing with things over and over and over again. Now, there's some people who never get into the good fight, so they don't know what it is to get tired in the good fight. There's a lot of people like that who are never really engaged, and so they don't really understand this, but if you're seeking to live for God in this world, if you're seeking to make Christ number one, you know this, there's a lot of discouragements. There's a lot of things as you face the oppositions that come against you in this world. And so he says here, pray at all times and not lose heart, which really brings us back again to trying to get you to understand the context of where Jesus is coming from in giving this parable. You know, this is one of the wonderful things that I love about teaching through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, inductively, because it forces us to consider truth in its proper context. Not only do we find ourselves having to deal with passages that we might otherwise avoid, because maybe they make us feel uncomfortable, or maybe we think they'll make someone else feel uncomfortable, it, it kind of makes us move through the scripture leaving no stone unturned. And we end up dealing with things sometimes that upset us and sometimes it really get to us. But oftentimes as you go through scripture, you find yourself going through repeated themes. Things that you go over again and again and again and again and again. You talk about love, for instance, in the New Testament. It's a very key theme. It's something that we're all about as believers and so it comes up all the time, forgiveness and grace and repentance and salvation. These are things that we need to hear again and again and again, such as even prayer here this morning. Now, again, if I was to teach topically, I might tuck on one of these things maybe once every year, maybe once every two years. But as we go through the scripture, we end up dealing with them over and over again. But we have an issue that sometimes... We take scriptures and we take them in chunks and we treat them as if they're independent from other passages, that which is before them or after them, as if they have no relationship to a context. And sometimes when you do that, you completely miss the heart and thrust of what the passage is actually all about. So when we teach inductively, verse by verse, you know, we find ourselves repeating things over and over again. Because again, these are things we need to keep on going over again, but you want to put them in their context. For instance, when Luke is writing out this gospel, he is not writing out chapters and verses. He is not writing, well, I've got chapter three done, now I've got to know on to pat chapter four. He's not thinking of verse three or verse five. There was no chapter divisions and there was no verse divisions. In fact, they don't come along until about the 1500s. It's when they begin to kind of put divisions or, uh, in the scripture between chapters and verses. And that was actually a very good thing because what it was given to was to give us a reference point. So that we could go back to certain places and see certain things at any given time. Legal books do it all the time. They give you reference points. Place that you can go to. You can turn to section three, you know, go here and you're going to find what you're looking for. Well, that's why they did this in scripture. But the problem with that is that if you're not careful, you can end up taking a passage by itself 
but take it completely out of context. And when that happens, you can end up with some very strange things. Not only not gaining the truth that is there, but you can actually come up with false teaching. A lot of the false teachers, what they do is they take verses, but they take them out of the context of which they are given, and they completely miss the whole point, and they give you something rather false. Now, so when you look at the passage here, you got to fully understand it and context. And context, where we see where we are at this particular time in our study is, as we've been saying, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has already left Galilee months earlier. He spent times on the east side of the Jordan where they've gone from village to village preaching the gospel and healing the sick and doing all this great work that they've been doing. But he's been getting ready and setting his course on Jerusalem for Passover where Jesus is very aware at this particular Passover that he will be laying down his life as Lamb of God. He knows the whole thing and he's moving steadily for it. And last week, when we were in our study, we saw that at that particular point that some of the Pharisees came up and asked Jesus, so Jesus, when? When is the kingdom of God coming? To which Jesus responded to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, they want to know from Jesus when the kingdom is coming. Now, I personally believe, because I know the heart of the Pharisees toward Jesus at this point, they are asking him cynically. They are asking him not because they're sincere. They are doing so mockingly. Why? Because they have a major problem with Jesus. Because Jesus does not, for them, fit the profile of what they were expecting in their Messiah. Why? Because they knew that the prophets, according to the prophets, that when Messiah comes, that he's coming to establish his earthly kingdom as a king, a monarch, in the fashion of King David, who is a great military and political leader, and will overthrow the yoke of oppression. Now, to be fair, they did have a proper understanding of the promises of the prophets. But they also neglected, in their own mind, those other passages that dealt with Jesus being a suffering servant. You see, they're not thinking that it's possible that Messiah could actually come twice rather than once. In their minds, what they're thinking about Jesus is that he is just a nobody from nowhere. You know, he, he's just somebody and he's followed by a bunch of other followers who are nobodies from nowhere themselves. He's just a poor man without a home who is admired by other poor common people without reputation. That's how they view Jesus. They think he's drawing all these people to himself, leading them astray. Now, they could not deny the miracles that Jesus did. In fact, when you go through the gospel, it's interesting to see how often the religious leaders were present when Jesus did these miracles. When the blind were given sight and the deaf were given their hearing, when the sick were healed, and even the dead being raised, they couldn't deny that this was a supernatural work, but rather than accept it being a work of God, if you remember, they attributed it to the power of Satan in their unbelief. 
So their question to Jesus comes, when is the kingdom coming? To which Jesus replied to them, you know, the kingdom as you expect to come is coming, but not yet. Why? Then he says, it's coming, but it's also present with you now. Why does he say that? Well, because he's the king. He is the promised one. And as long as Jesus is there present with you, the kingdom of God is with you. That now in the present, as believers, the kingdom of God for us is spiritual. It resides in the heart of every true born-again believer who in faith is trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior, allowing him to rule and reign over their lives. We are citizens of his kingdom. And we saw that the kingdom last week is defined as God's people and God's place under God's rule. So after this, Jesus takes the disciples aside and he begins to give them a better understanding of what the plans are, telling them, hey, I want you to know that, yeah, I'm gonna come again and and I'm gonna be here again, but first there are certain things that have to happen. But he promises them, you know, one day I am gonna come and, and I will come and there'll be no mistake about it. When I do come, everyone in the whole world is gonna witness it. Everyone is gonna see it. That when he returns again, it will be an outward manifestation that will be recognizable by everyone, not as someone over here or over there, but he'll come in the clouds, just as described in Revelation 19. However, he says, before any of these things can happen, he tells them that he must first suffer and be rejected by that generation, which, of course, is an obvious reference to his upcoming crucifixion. But in that, listen to what Jesus is telling them. He's telling them that he's going to go away. He's telling them, actually, he's going to die. He's telling them he's going to go away, but he's going to come back. He's giving them the lowdown. Now, they don't understand any of this yet, so he keeps on reiterating. We'll see it just in a couple of weeks in our passage. But Jesus explains that when he does come and when he does return, it will be just like they had expected, that he's going to come with power and with glory and that it's going to be a day of joy. It's going to be a day of vindication for every true born-again believer. It'll be our day of salvation. However, at the same time, it's going to be a terrible day of judgment for the wicked. And Jesus then uses two examples to kind of explain what it's going to be like. He uses both Noah and he talks about Lot, how Noah endured his season and to the judgment of God that comes upon the whole world and how Lot stands in that time where God judges Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Now, both Noah and Lot and their families, we're told, were spared the judgment of God and salvation. Both Noah and Lot, they lived themselves amidst a crooked generation that detested the rule of God. They lived in that kind of environment. In both cases, until that time came for judgment, the people of that generation, they continued on eating, they continued on drinking and buying and selling and practicing sexual perversion and their rebellion as if there was no accountability that there would never be judgment for the wicked. In both cases, the judgment of God eventually came, and when it did come, it came swiftly, it came thoroughly against the enemies of God. In both cases, Noah and Lot were both vindicated for their faith. 
They're ultimately vindicated before their generation. Why? Because they trusted God when the whole generation was going off and going wicked. They both were justifiably vindicated for their faith in God's word. Think about Noah again. Here's Noah. He continues to believe God in faith, and he builds that ark for 120 years. He continued to build. Why? Because he believes what God has told him. For 120 years, he is the subject of scorn, of mockery of those who would come against him, of those who think, that guy's loony, man. He, look at him, he's crazy. He thinks he's nuts. Lot, he believed God, and he obediently gathered his family, fled Sodom before the judgment. He was told to never look back on where he had come from, which is related, people, to what Jesus is dealing with in this parable. This parable and this topic here is given in the top in the, in the context of him coming again when he will vindicate those who are waiting for him, those who are righteous. That one day he's going to physically return to the earth to rule and reign in righteousness. On that same day that he spares the righteous, he's also going to execute his judgment. And when he does, it will be thorough and it will be Swift. Meanwhile, here's the question. Since we too now live in a generation, and the question is, how do believers live in a generation where there's nothing but corruption and wickedness around them? That's the context by which Jesus says here in verse one. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. This parable is given in relationship to how we are to live as believers in a world that is filled with corruption. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been for Noah to live in his day? In the midst of his generation, as he saw the wickedness about him, you know, as he preaches and people are laughing at him and they're mocking him, he's the crazy loon. Listen, Noah continued to believe God. And you think about Lot. I mean, Lot had foolishly chosen to live in Sodom. But in faith, the time comes when he believes God and he flees the judgment. Now, Peter highlights Lot's uh, plight here. He actually says in 2 Peter 2, 7, he says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and I get a kick out of him calling righteous Lot. Have you guys ever read the story? He doesn't seem too righteous to me. But the thing that is, he's credited for is because he believes God. And he flees when the time comes. But righteous Lot, it says, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw, he heard that righteous man, when living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep the unrighteous or unrighteous under punishment for the day of the judgment. He's saying here that when Lot was living, that he was sickened. He was sickened by what he saw in the generation around him. You know, he felt oppression and this, this sensual conduct of unprincipled men he talks about. So while he lives among his generation, he feels his righteous soul, he says, was tormented 
by what he saw. Let me ask you, do you ever feel that way as you look at our world? Are you grieved? When you see this world in the condition it is in, and I mean, you don't have to go far. Just turn on your TV for five seconds. When you look at the world, is your soul at peace with what you see? Or are you bothered by it? That's a good question. Lot was sickened by what he saw in his generation. And I have to tell you that I'm increasingly being sickened by what I see in the world around me. And if you're not grieved and sickened by what you see, you're in spiritual trouble. And the Lord wants to awaken you now to just seeing him and his righteousness because it's awful what's going on in the world. It's terrible. People in this world mock believers. Why? Because we're outdated, man. We're living this archaic belief in a God who created all things. Because we believe that he's given us a holy word by which he has revealed himself as to how we should live. And every day we witness the corruption, the injustice that comes on every single level. And this isn't a message on social justice at all. This is about justice, period, because God is just. You know, we're living kind of like Noah, kind of like Lot, living our lives here while people are eating, drinking, marrying, getting married, partying, mocking, doing all those things as if there is no accountability whatsoever. And the question is, so how then are we to live? To which Jesus gives wonderful counsel. By the way, did you know that every time we come to church and we open the word, we're, we're being counseled? Did you know that? You, this is one big counseling session. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is trying to counsel us today on what is true. And if you receive it that way, it's just great. I'm going to counseling today. You guys are getting counseled. Here's Jesus' counsel. Pray at all times and faint not. Pray at all times. The key to not fainting is praying always. You see, prayer, we know this, as you go through the Bible, comes in many shapes and sizes. You have different kinds of prayer, prayers of praise and worship. You have prayers of repentance and intercession and petition. There's so many forms of prayer. But here he says, I want you to pray in a general sense. I want you to do it always and faint not. Now listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. I love this. This really stuck out to me last year. But he gives three things in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, three things that we ought to do is rejoice always. That's one. Pray without ceasing. That's two. In everything, give thanks. And then he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if you're wanting to know what God's will is for you today, it's right there. He says, you know, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. That's God's will. That's what he is asking you and calling you to do. When you go to that section on spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of it, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, the prayer that he's talking about here is not necessarily the prayer that you do when you close your eyes, now I lay me down to sleep, or whatever it might be. 
Now this is not, it's something really distinct, far more general, but even sincere as to how you're to live in communion with the Lord at all times. That there's never a time you're to be out of fellowship with him. That he is always just a prayer away. You don't have to be in in a certain place. You don't have to be here. All you have to do, and by the way, don't ever, ever let anybody tell you that you can't pray in school or you can't pray in a government building. You can pray anytime you want to pray. It's just tuning your heart into God in fellowship. It's called abiding in Christ. That's what it means to abide in him. You see, prayer is this continual reminder for us that we are never alone, that he is always with us even when nobody else is with us, we have God. And if you've got God with you, you've got everything. So he brings it out here, you know, pray. And this is how we're to make it in the world today. It's through prayer that we are given fresh air spiritually. And in in this tainted world, we get untainted, fresh air by the Spirit of God. Now, the problem with most of us is this, is that we all tend to compartmentalize our lives. Did you guys know that? In other words, we have the kind of way of treating this this part of our life, well, this is my spiritual side, and this is my secular side. So when I go to church on Sunday, I'm feeding my spiritual side, and the rest of the week, I'm kind of doing my secular thing, the problem is when you go through the scripture, it doesn't recognize this. It doesn't even acknowledge it. it. doesn't say, hey, you got two lives you're living. It says you got one life. And your life that you live is now for Christ. And he's now the one who consumes your life. He's the one who has, takes, takes ownership of your life. And we recognize, yeah, it's hard to live in this world. You know, it's hard to live amongst the people that are rebellious and defiant And it's getting harder. And for me, you know, it's not too hard to even see the vultures beginning to kind of circle around. You can tell, man, judgment's coming. You can feel it. But we, you know, believe that we who trust Christ now and are obediently living him for him now will one day be vindicated before him in justice because of our faith in him now. Which brings us now to the parable. Jesus says this in the parable. He says, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For while he is unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God, nor do I respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Now notice in this this parable, he gives two key characters. He tells us here about a judge. And he tells us about his character. First off, he has no fear of God. He doesn't revere God. He doesn't care one little bit about what God thinks about anything. Secondly, he has no respect for man, which means he is without compassion. He has no mercy, no empathy. He is a heartless individual. You know, right away you can think there's probably a lot of judges 
who might fit that description in our culture. But right off the bat, you see, he's a wicked man. Why do you know that? Because in essence, he's already broken every single commandment. Why? Because he's forsaken his love for God and he's forsaken love for others. And so doing, he has really defied God greatly. On the other side here, we meet the widow. Now, especially in that Palestinian culture in that day, there was no one more vulnerable to abuse and injustice than a widow. They were often very much taken advantage of. Now, women couldn't go to court since she had no husband to stand for her. She usually stood alone. She remained vulnerable to abuse. Usually there was no one to defend her else, no one else to defend her, no advocate. And typically they were mostly poor, which means she couldn't bribe justice even if she wanted to. So she was really in many ways stuck. That's why the New Testament, it, it talks about us as believers taking care of widows because it understands the vulnerability by which they have in this world. God's heart, the Bible tells us, is tender toward widows and orphans. But in the parable, the widow comes to the judge and she's seeking justice. She's seeking vindication because she has opposition. King James says, avenge me from mine adversaries. However, the judge who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about others, he could care less about her injustice. Yet, she doesn't give up. She keeps on coming back to this judge, this wicked judge, with such persistence that eventually the judge finally caves in and gives into her need. Look what it says. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her, or I will avenge her actually, Otherwise, by continuing coming, she will wear me out. I mean, she bugs him until she wears him out. I mean, she nags. And she's continually pestering him till he finally has to respond to her. Now, listen to what Jesus says. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect? who cry out for him and day and night, and will he delay long over them? Now, let me get to what I want to talk about here. There's a lot of people who have read this passage and they kind of liken the widow coming to God and because of your persistence, you finally wear God out and you finally get him to respond to what you're asking for. How many of you people have ever thought that? You keep coming until you just wear him out. They think Jesus is saying that we ought to just keep on coming, pleading our case until he finally caves in and gives us what we think we need. Now, one of the obvious reasons we think that is because so often we present prayer as being nothing more than asking God for stuff. You know, we always think, well, prayer is, yeah, well, that's asking God for things. We don't understand prayer so much more than that, and I can't go into all that right now, but it's a great study. But it's not just asking God for things. While persistent prayer, I can say this, is noble, I think you should continue to pray about things. I think you should leave it. That's not the point of this passage. You see, in this parable, the judge is presented here in contrast, not comparison to God. 
who, who is truly righteous. God is righteous. He's just. Jesus is saying this. If a poor widow got what she deserved from a selfish judge, how much more will God's children receive what is right from their heavenly father? This is what he's bringing out here. Now consider the contrast of the widow and those of us who are children of God. The widow comes to the judge as a stranger, but not so with us. When we come to God, we're his children. He loves us and we're dear to him. The widow has no access really to the judge directly, but as God's children, we have direct access to the throne of grace at all times. We can come directly before the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Now consider the contrast of the judge and between the, this wicked judge and God. This judge is unfair. He is unjust. He is unloving, uncaring, but God is perfect. He is just. He is loving. He is caring. The judge is indifferent to all things. He has no personal connection to the widow. However, God is our father. He is compassionate. He is gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness for us who believe and trust in him. The judge answers the widow's cry for, out of pure self-interest, but when God answers our prayers, he does so because he is good, because he loves it when we come to him. He loves to take care of us. He loves to meet our genuine needs. God loves to answer our prayers. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus is forever making intercession for us. He's actually praying for us. Wrap your head around that, that God is not reluctant to answer our prayers. I love what Martin Luther said, I've quoted it often, that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it is laying hold of his willingness. That's really the essence of prayer. God, what is your heart for me? What do you want to do? So we don't pray to overcome God's reluctance, we pray to lay hold of his willingness. We need to know that this is who our God is that we love. Now Jesus says here in verse eight, I tell you, that he will bring about this, notice this, justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Notice Jesus says this is all in context of his returning to the earth. Will he find faith? Now consider here the widow she's pleading. What was she asking the judge for? Justice. Lord, I want, you to, or I, I want you to avenge what's going on with me and make, vindicate me before my enemies. Vindicate me. You see this often in the Psalms. She's, she's pleading for righteous justice. She's seeking vindication. She's not praying for money. She's not praying for wealth. She's not praying for a new house. She's not praying for a new camel. That's not what she's praying for. She's not praying for more friends, and she's not praying for her own health. No, what she is seeking more than anything is justice. Lord, just vindicate me before those who mock, before those who come against me. Now, I have to say that typically when I come to prayer, I am not usually asking God for justice. I'm usually asking him for mercy. I'm usually asking him forgiveness. But in the context of what you see going on in the world around you, when you see the world carrying on in its defiance and even making mockery of those who would live for the Lord, you wonder, how long, Lord? 
how long until justice comes? That one day we will be vindicated. In fact, you see this interesting picture in Revelation chapter 6. We have the martyred saints who are in heaven, and it says, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Look what they're seeking. They're seeking righteous vindication for how they lived and the blood that was shed while they were here. You almost wonder how many times in 120 years Noah came to God and said, God, how long? How long are you going to put up with all this? How long will it be until you finally vindicate my faith in you and my trust in you? How long? Rather than getting swallowed up in the world around him, Noah continued on in faith, and he believed God until that time of judgment came. You wonder how many times Lot, when he was living in that generation, in his place, and he sees the wickedness around him, he's tormenting his soul, and he says, God, how long? How long will you put up with this? How long will it be? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he will bring about justice for them quickly, for those who are waiting for those who are trusting, for those who are seeking. And he describes them here as the elect in verse 7. Those who have been chosen to inherit the blessings and the riches of God in faith by grace. He says he's going to come quickly. And by that, he's not saying, I'm coming in a few minutes. You know, Jesus said, you know, I'm coming soon. We all know it's been 2,000 years. But what he is saying here is that when he comes, it will be swift and it will be thorough, just like it was for Noah and just like it was for Lot, that when he comes, it'll be a day of vindication for the righteous who have believed and trusted in the midst of a crooked generation. And so the Lord is saying, this is what I want for you. Continue to trust. Continue to pray. And then Jesus asked this most important question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people trusting him? Will he find people waiting for him? Believing that eventually justice is going to come? And that's really a good question. Will he? The Bible says really hard time in the last days. Many, the love of many will wax cold. People will walk away. And today is always, there are believers around this world right now who are being persecuted terribly because of their faith. And they are enduring things that you and I could hardly believe. I don't know where it's going to turn out for us in this country, I don't know. But I do know that the only one that I can trust in this world is him. And that someday, because I'm trusting him, no matter what they do, in his righteousness, he's going to vindicate all who have trusted him and waited for him. Just as he did then. And here's the, the way... I want to leave this with you. Three things. Pray persistently. Wait 
patiently. Persevere in faith expectantly. Pray persistently. Wait patiently. And persevere in your faith expectantly. Knowing that that day will come. Meanwhile, he says, while we live here, amidst a world that is unbelieving and rejecting of the truth, you keep your heart focused. You keep looking, holding on to the truth of God. Never give up. And remember that God is just. No one's going to get away with anything. God sees it all. But I want to just close with one thought because this came to my mind when it comes to justice. You know, I, I love the fact that God is just. But it just brings me to another important truth to kind of remind you of this, is that salvation for a believer is an issue of justice. Did you guys know that? In other words, God couldn't just say, oh, forget about your sin. Because he's holy and he's perfect. He couldn't say, well, forget it. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Ah, oh, whatever. People kind of think, well, God doesn't really care. Well, he does care. Because he's holy and he's perfect. So what God does, because he is just, he finds a just way by which we can come before him in a true relationship. And the way that he provides is only through his son, Jesus. And when we come to Jesus and we put our faith in Jesus, God looks at us and he sees us through the cross. He sees us through that filter. And he sees us as righteous because Jesus is righteous. And so doing, God has justified us before himself. And that word justified, it means just as if I never sinned. People, if you don't know Jesus, I love this verse, Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. When Jesus came, he met every righteous requirement. And that is what you and I hold on to. It's the justice of God that is found in Christ alone. And it's because he is just, we are saved only through Christ. Do you understand that? God is just. His, he is thoroughly just. And the world wants to take you away from that like he's just kind of casual about all the stuff going on. Oh, no, no, no. God is not casual about it. He sees it all. The day will come when the world's gonna face but I tell you something, what I think about and we talked about with Peter is that the Lord says he restrains from coming. Why? For those who will be saved. God endures the garbage for the sake of those who come to know him. And I ask, Lord, how many more will be saved before that day? I pray there's a lot more. I pray there's a lot more. But if you happen to be here this morning and you're one of those people, who hasn't received Christ and you haven't put your faith in him, I want you to know that God loves you. 
But truth tells us that the day will come when he will judge you if you reject what he's given to you. It's a free gift. And today could be your day. Father, we thank you this morning Lord, we recognize the the tension, Lord, that we as believers face in wanting to live a righteous life amidst the generation that cares nothing about you. Lord, we see it day in, we see it day out. And maybe there's some of us here who have just gotten so numb to it, we don't even see it anymore. But I pray, God, that you give us a passion for you. That, Lord, that we would seek you with everything we have. And, Lord, that you would purge out of our lives, Lord, anything that robs us of the relationship you so desire with each one of us. I pray that this morning, Lord. I pray, Father, for anyone here who has been sucked into the, the, the confusion or even sucked into the world in such a way, God, that it has a hold on them and that today, God, that you would break the chain. Lord, we sense that things are wrapping up. We sense, Lord, that You're doing something in this day, Lord, that is very extraordinary. And I pray, God, that you would just awaken us to your work. God, that we as your people would trust you as we wait upon you. And that, Lord, that we would persevere in faith, believing in your holiness and in your goodness. And in the grace, God, that you have so freely given to us in Christ Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you would meet, Lord, every need here this morning. And Lord, you know who they are, but we just lift it to you. And we thank you, Father, for your presence here this morning. If you're here this morning and you are in need of prayer, I want to encourage you. We have folks up here to pray with you. If you are one of those people who have never given your life to Christ, you can come up to one of us here or meet me afterwards or if you want to come down here, I'll come down to you and, and let, let it be the day that this is the day of your salvation. Because people, the judgment of God is going to come. On the same day that he comes to this earth, the judgment is coming. What will it be? Let's all stand.